This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. And then, of course, the big lie is, um, I think, several things. One, that a 45-minute exam that is kind of cobbled together is actually meaningful in any real way. And though I am really conflicted about standardized tests, I do feel still pretty strongly that every high school student should have an experience with a high stakes test. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, an interview show. My name is Nate and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. I want to have a conversation today about some of the issues that are impacting students. At the heart of my advocacy is often a passion for justice, but also a passion for issues that impact students. And during the COVID outbreak, I'm looking back at the United States and I'm seeing a situation where upperclassmen in the United States and American schools are being faced with a dilemma that I think is a very, frankly, unfair dilemma for them. Essentially, I'm talking about, in particular, high school seniors who have done everything right, are getting ready to go to college, and now face some really tough choices, given all the instability and unpredictability of the near future. Uh, I think to contextualize this, I want to share my story a little bit. If you haven't, like, if you don't know me in real life uh, and haven't listened to the show for a long time, uh, I'm 40 years old, and I graduated from university in 2004. And so I'm a part of basically the last wave of Americans who were able to graduate from college debt-free. Uh, I finished my undergrad debt-free. I put on about $30,000 in debt in graduate school. And then uh, I basically consolidated all my debt and then paid it off over time with the help of a teaching award that I won. And so I have no uh, college debt. But I went to school at a time period where where tuition was lower, number one, and also like student loan interest rates weren't astronomical like they are. I was talking to a colleague right now who has student loan interest rates at 9%. And like, that's, that's a preposterous number. And so as somebody who works with students and thinks a lot about like students and like their futures and like the choices they have to make, I'm being very judicious and very thoughtful. And I, I, feel, I feel like compelled to kind of weigh in on this conversation. If you're a high school senior and you have a shaky financial aid offer, what should you do about this fall? And so in order to have this conversation, uh, I brought uh, a couple of friends on the show. Uh, we're going to have one right now, and we'll bring Kim Thomas in, in segment number two. So James, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Nate. It's really great to be here. Man, thank you for coming on. Uh, you've actually transitioned jobs since I moved overseas, I think. Can you tell the audience, what do you do now? Yeah, so I'm director of undergraduate admissions at Seattle University, uh, part of a uh, long-ish admissions career. Uh, you know, these days it's you start to um, realize, gosh, I've made it to year 14, made it to year 15 in this work. Uh, but I've worked um, in both uh, public higher education at the University of Washington Bothell and at Oregon State University, go Beavs, uh, as well as uh, <laughs> working at college admissions at University of San Francisco, University of Puget Sound, and now um, Seattle U, go Red Hawks. So um, that is what I am up to. What are your thoughts about the issues that are facing? So we're going to talk about the college board and the AP exam in segment number two for sure. 
But what are your thoughts about the choices that students are facing coming out of high school this year? Um, it's ridiculous. You know, uh, here's here's how, um, and, and you'll have to forgive me because as I mentioned in prep, I am kind of reflecting and discerning in real time um, because it, it feels like every day that we go through is a year right now. Sure. Um, and I, uh, so I think a couple things. Number one, uh, the, the place I begin is actually empathy, Nate. Because our students um, right now graduating graduating high school, born in 2001 or 2002, uh, were born into a post-9-11 world. Uh, they've never known uh, pre-9-11. And now are going to have to make their choice about how and where to go to college in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, and I think there's a, a fair order of hope inside of that. But I, I think that the place I begin is really empathy in, in the losses that they're experiencing, um, both in, in, you know, kind of what, what can be a really joyful process, which is the college search and making your final decision. Uh, but it's also a really stressful process because there's a lot going on, right? You've got to make a, a, a decision. My, my friend, uh, Scotty Hill at Annie Wright School, who, who is a college counselor there, talks about social fit, uh, ac- academic fit, and financial fit. And really right now, you can't in person assess the academic fit or the social fit. And there's a, a, a world now financially where we are teetering on the edge of a global depression where you also can't make a good financial decision. Because even if you have a good sense of that financial aid package, maybe you actually don't know what your family situation is going to look like now. Yeah. Um, so so it's... it's um, it's an unbelievably stressful situation, and, and that doesn't even begin to touch the just immediate health and safety concerns that families have around uh, going to a college campus potentially open in the fall, not knowing what the social distancing guidelines will be, not knowing what it'll be like to live in a residence hall, not knowing what it'll be like to go to class. So it is, um, I, I, I start from that place of empathy of just, you know, understanding that families and their students have to make a, almost an impossible set of decisions. Uh, so so I, I think what we're seeing right now is just students and their families sitting on the sidelines, frankly, um, not able to make a decision. What is the college admissions process like? I, I think that, like, like so I remember, so, like, full disclosure, full disclosure, um, I graduated back in 1997 when Bill Clinton was president, Dinosaurs Walk the Earth. And I think that folks my age or uh, around my age might have a different experience. So like, what does the calendar look like for kids who are applying to school and where are they in the application process right now? Yeah. So um, great question. The, you know, I, I applied to college on paper applications that were stuck in the middle of U-books, right? So Same. when I, when I step back from this, it's amazing um, how much it's changed. You know, essentially where we at, where we're at is uh, what we call the yield season in the business. Um, but, but really that those months of March and April uh, have culminated in a, a kind of a, a cycle where students began their applications in the early fall having built their lists, having built their final where I'm going to apply lists 
if if they had um, uh, the privilege of good uh, access to to college prep and to college counseling, they probably start started building their list midway through their junior year, um, and and were in probably active discern- discernment on their on their college process as early as the first part of their junior year, if not a little bit earlier. Again, if they're really lucky. So um, then you fast forward um, from you know placing the application, hearing from colleges probably in the first part of March. This is always for students who are entering college for the first time, kind of a little bit of a race anyway. You know, I, you, you kind of, you, you go through the whole process of trying to get into the places that you are interested in. And then there's kind of a, a sub discernment that has to occur uh, once you're admitted uh, around, okay, now I know what financial aid looks like. Now I know if I got into my major. Now let me go visit. Now let me go um, interact with the admissions counselor or the financial aid office. So that's the phase that we are in right now. And traditionally in, in higher ed, that, that process is wrapped up right around May 1, which is the, um, the milestone we've just passed. Well, and this is where some of my trepidation about high school seniors comes up because one of my jobs at Lincoln High School was for kids who didn't have family members that were college educated or didn't have family members with high financial literacy or for kids that didn't have family members whose first uh, whose native language was English, I would sit down with them and I would go through financial aid offers. And there's a difference between the university says, we'll take you like we accept you. But they say and show you, I want you through the financial aid offer. And I know that there are low-income students in Washington State and low-income students across the country now who, because schools are closed, they don't have that counselor or advisor there to walk them through a financial aid offer. I'm not sure that many people listening to the show right now have seen a financial aid offer. Can you talk, can you kind of explain, kind of teach us about those? Like, what is that document and why does it matter so much for a kid trying to choose what school they're going to go to? Yeah, yeah. The um, financial aid offer. First of all, I just want to second what what you say there, um, and I can't I can't reiterate it enough. Actually, I mean, it is so stressful for students who are first in their family to go. Um, certainly, like I was. I mean, I I remember distinctly getting my financial aid package in the mail, yeah. and and looking at it, and almost just having this feeling in the moment of like, I can't do this. Like I I like. Uh, you know, I think I, it was like, I had to take $2,000 in loans for my first year to make it affordable. And I was like, no, I can't do this. Right. It's a snap reaction. Like no way this can happen. Um, and thankfully I had someone in my life, a a college counselor who was able to, um, to help me through that. And yeah. So what, what you say about a financial aid package? Um, I think the first thing is there, there is a little bit of standardization because there are some rules around how financial aid is supposed to be presented. Um, so good financial aid packages generally go through the process of breaking down for students, um, the three major types of aid, right? So you're going to have what we call the free money, right? Which is going to be, um, oftentimes, a, a federal or a state need grant. Uh, it's going to be uh, perhaps a university scholarship, a merit scholarship, something along those lines. Uh, that's money that students don't have to repay. But one of the big problems is in the process, we don't call it free money. We call it granting, right? right. Which is a, a exclusive language in and of itself. Then the next section is going to be um, what is colloquially and annoyingly called self-help. Um, which is 
technically uh, student loans. Um, Almost every student who submits a FAFSA is given access to both a federal subsidized and a federal unsubsidized loan. The big thing to know, the difference there, uh, payment is deferred till the end, but an unsub loan, an unsubsidized loan, the interest is covered by the federal government. Uh, a, a subsidized or excuse a subsidized loan, excuse me, interest is covered by the federal government. An unsub loan, the interest continues to accrue while the student is studying. Um, so, yet another place where how how would you ever know the difference uh, on that front if you if you didn't have access to good coaching? And then for students who have a higher level of need, there's oftentimes a federal work study award, which is also super confusing for students because they don't know does that mean I work and then the university gets paid. I work and I get paid. Um, So generally, a good financial aid package is going to break the award into three chunks and then compare what's given in the award to what's called the cost of attendance. And what you're going to have are direct costs, which are tuition, financial aid, um, or excuse me, tuition. Uh, You're going to have housing if the student has chosen to live on campus and any fees. And then there are um, indirect costs, things like books, travel, uh, to and from campus, uh, incidentals, uh, housing and food. Um, so depending on the student's individual situation, whether they've chosen to live live on or off campus, those budgets can be different too. So um, the goal is to get the master summary of that financial aid package and subtract that amount from the cost of attendance to get essentially what it is that you're going to have to expect to pay. But good luck navigating that, right? If, yeah, they're, they're, horrible. they're horrible. I've, I've sat yeah. down. I've sat down and read them. And I so listen. I I studied economics in college, and I've sat down to read them with students. And I'm like, listen, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Like the bottom line is, this says thirty four thousand dollars, and this says seventeen thousand dollars. But PLU is actually going to be cheaper for you, even though that number is bigger than this school is going to be. And it's 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 calling it a labyrinth is like an understatement. And it's, it, it's manic. It's and there's crazy. nobody there right now to help kids navigate that. <laughs> That's well, right. And, and I think one of the reasons why I make selfishly perhaps, or just kind of knowing the kind of kid who I glommed onto as a teacher, the student who is going to be, and, and if, if, if I'm wrong here, tell me I'm wrong. The student who is most up the creek right now is the kid who is the uh, intelligent but didn't always work hard in high school. So they're sitting at that low three or high two GPA. Like yeah. those are the, those yeah. are the kids who are, who are most like up in the air about and, and don't have anybody to get to guide them. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. But, but one of the things, um, you know, that we see a lot, Nate, is um, really high achieving students who have packages that because of their accomplishments make it possible for them to go but but are equivalently unequipped. And sometimes people assume, oh, that kid is super bright. They've got it. They'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And um, but the, but they have the same needs that 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 student in the lower um, lower academic quintiles have in terms of I don't have a family at home who can help me understand this. Perhaps the family at home can't even read this financial aid package because it's in a language they don't speak. And so sometimes I worry about those students as well because people assume that because they're super bright that they've got it locked down. Yeah. Well, and and also the way in which family need is calculated. Uh, I had a nightmare scenario a few years ago where uh, a young lady was admitted to a school that basically met the full financial need of students, air quote. Uh, But a family member or a parent of the student uh, had a lot of 
gambling winnings in a calendar year. And so gambling winnings are counted as income, but that money's gone because gambling money gets churned by gamblers. So the financial aid offer the student got was trash. But according to their FAFSA, they had a high financial need. And so this student is now finishing their second year at Pierce College, even though they walked out of my classroom with like a 3.7 GPA and greatest T scores. Like this is the injustice of it all. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about that federal need formula for a second. Something uh, I'm going to go off on this a little bit, something that is both irritating about this and is really difficult for families to understand is that need formula does not actually exist to accurately assess your need. What that formula exists to do primarily is to ration federal financial aid resources. So the, the need formula is actually tuned up to say, okay, we've got all these people at different need levels. We want a certain number of people to get Pell because that's what's going to be available in the budget. We've got a certain number of people who we want to give uh, subsidized loans to. That's what's going to be in the budget and SEOG and all these other federal um, programs that sometimes trickle down to states and, and to public and private universities. And so that need formula, which gets used to determine both uh, institutional aid as well as federal aid, is tuned up to actually just ration the federal resources properly. And so, um, you know, families are rightfully always super frustrated by um, by that formula because it doesn't take into account your cost of living. If you live in the city of Seattle in a, even a rent-controlled apartment and are working two jobs on an hourly basis, there is no way that need formula is going to accurately capture what your, what your um, physical financial need is. There's a lot of outrage in the public about tuition costs. And it's funny because if, if I'm a university, I'm unhappy about these costs as well. Like, I don't think that the chancellors and presidents of UPS and PLU and Seattle University want to be charging what they offer tuition, but this is the cost of doing business given the lack of funding and federal dollars that are out there. And it just puts people all in a really, really bad position. And it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. All right. So we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to bring Kim Thomas in the conversation. And we're going to talk about uh, a real, frankly, a villain that has emerged in the last few months in this conversation, and that's the College Board. So we'll be back. This is Doug Mackey, producer of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. PLU is expanding its graduate program and creating more and more ways for you to continue your education. A master's from PLU can take your career to the next level, or it might just be the thing you need to pivot to something you've discovered you're passionate about later in life. The master's in kinesiology is a whole new graduate program adding on to PLU's decades of experience with advanced degrees in nursing, education, fine arts, marketing, and more. Think about PLU as a sort of training ground for what comes next. Earn your spurs here and then ride your new master's degree into the sunset. Best of all, if you live in Tacoma, PLU is just down the street. That means there's no Seattle traffic between you and your degree. To request more information or attend an info session, visit plu.edu slash graduate. My thanks to PLU for their sponsorship of Channel 253. And we are back. I want to thank you very much for downloading the show today. If you enjoy what you're listening to right now and enjoy the work of Channel 253, I'm going to strongly and sternly with my deep voice, encourage you to join Channel 253 as a member. 
Membership to Channel 253 costs $4 a month or $40 a year. And these help us make and produce shows that are telling stories and giving points of view you won't get in other places. We just started a new show called Gimme the Mic. And Gimme the Mic is an opportunity for community members to basically snatch the microphone and do six-shot episodes or six-shot uh, mini-series about topics they're passionate about. And the first Gimme the Mic features Stella Keating, and it's about youth advocacy. And it makes my heart sing to listen to youth talk about leading the world in a better direction. And so if you enjoy this show and want to support that work and shows like Gimme the Mic and shows like uh, Taco Man and shows like Crossing Division, Tacoma's Talk Show, and shows like IWL, which is on like a streak right now, please go to channel253.com slash membership, $4 a month, $4 a year. That's cheaper than like the cheapest beer in any bar in Tacoma, except for like Schlitz, but whatever, that's gross. All right. Uh, I want to welcome to the conversation, uh, one, a dear friend of mine, two, a uh, force of nature, and three, a freelance sell sword of wokeness and equity, uh, Kim Thomas. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Nate. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Kim, uh, I'm not going to share the story of how we first met, but it involves me swearing about Kanye West in the kitchen about 15 years ago. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> oh, man, I, you are such a pain in the ass. I, well, some things never change, right? I mean... Uh, <laughs> I want to bring you into the conversation because you do work in college advising. You advise mm -hmm. high school students, including former students of mine, mm -hmm. about the choices that they need, should be making for themselves and their families about higher education. And I'm sitting here uh -huh. looking at students and wondering, is a student making a good choice if they sign a financial aid offer and decide to go to a school that is possible will be closed in the fall? Mm -hmm. at the tuition rates that are being charged. Like we, we know tuition is, is high. Is, so the rent is too damn high. We know tuition is way too damn high. And so I'm just really curious, how are you advising students you talk to right now? You know, Nate, it's, it's a real challenge to be quite honest with you. And it's a challenge both kind of practically and pragmatically to advise students, um, really any student, um, regardless of income and regardless of racial background, uh, uh, just in general, it's difficult to do that in this particular moment. And I would say for me, um, you know, as a professional college advisor, um, for the last two years has been a real philosophical challenge for me um, to do college advising because of the cost of attending. And I also think, you know, not, not only the cost of attending financially, but I think the cost of attending uh, culturally and socially, particularly for low-income students and students of color, um, you know, higher education and college is both, can be both extraordinarily transformative and also extremely oppressive mm -hmm. um, to historically marginalized students. So, um, you know, all of that to say that it's really hard. Um, and um, I, I will admit, and I think you and I have talked about this briefly, I will admit that I, I have felt a pulling back, a pulling away personally from the ways in which I used to talk about college. You know, for me, I went to the University of Puget Sound here in Tacoma, um, first-generation college student, biracial black woman, working class. Um, and despite or maybe because of all of the challenges presented to me at a extraordinarily white, wealthy, small university, I really thrived. And uh, college really changed my life. And I, I do believe, st I, I still do believe in the, 
again, the, the power to, um, for higher education to transform and even radicalize students. But I do wonder at what cost, literally, at what cost are we um, and am I participating in really um, harming students um, and in particular poor students with, you know, what I consider to be, you know, the violence of lifelong debt. So it's, it's, uh, it's hard to do. And um, it, it, I think for me, my, my particular approach is honesty and transparency with students and with families. Um, in terms of my own personal experience with college, which, you know, was over 20 years ago. And it was so interesting listening to James talk about financial aid packages. Like I'm still so triggered by just the notion of a financial aid package. Like, the, mm-hmm. like just, you know, back in 1990, you know, five, when I received mine from, from UPS and the three other schools to which I applied, it was like, you know, a, a triplicate form that you got in the mail. And it was just like, what are we even reading? Um, and not, not much has changed in terms of the accessibility of just the information. And so um, I continue to be really conflicted about my role as a college advisor and, um, and really the role of higher education in the United States. No, that's, that's, that's facts. I'm sitting here thinking in particular about a student like myself. Uh I'm thinking about somebody who is a low income student, Uh somebody who didn't have the best grades uh, for a host of reasons. For me, my my father passed away my sophomore year. Uh This is a giant crater in my GPA my sophomore year uh, who has an admissions letter to a school they really want to go to, but Uh not a strong financial aid offer. Uh And then is trying to debate whether they should go to that school whether they should go to a community college. Cause like, here's, here's where I am right now. And and so like, I, I don't expect James to say this and James shouldn't say this. Cause that's cause like he's an admissions advisor, sorry, admissions officer at, at Seattle U. But like, if you're going to pay, if kids are going to be paying full tuition costs to be on school, to be, to, to be online uh, at college in the fall, which uh-huh. I think is fairly likely given this outbreak, I have a hard time saying that like somebody should pay the full boat to, UPS or the full boat to Gonzaga if they're going to be online, given that community college, given that the community colleges in Washington state are among the best in the country and tuition there's like under $2,000 a year. I, I, absolutely. That's where I am right now. And that's 100% where I am right now. But I, I admit that it was frankly where I was pre COVID. Um, I think what what the pandemic, of course, has done is just revealed, has just completely pulled back any veneer that we could have said existed to our knowledge of the vast rot that is the inequities of any system in any institution. Um, And so I was already there, Nate, um, prior to COVID. And... COVID, of course, the pandemic and what you're saying, like this notion of how do we actually engage in higher education? What is college? What does that mean? What is school? Um, You know, I also do, you know, racial equity work with high schools and it's right now the, and I'm sure you're hearing this a lot too, Nate, um, like what is school? Um, And if school is, is not necessarily 
a place where you go and you sit in a chair and you have Mr. Bowling in front of the class, um, kind of imparting knowledge and wisdom, which is totally not your teaching style, by the way, Nate. Um, if we don't need to do that in order to deliver education or deliver information, then what is it? And I think that there is, you know, there's an element of that to college. Um, but there's also an element, I think, to higher education in this moment now um, that I admit that I'm a little bit conflicted about. And so I want to go back to what you're saying about, you know, the kind of student that you were in high school. Um, and I think, I think where I am is both wanting to be a really fierce advocate for students like that, for students who are clearly bright, clearly ready for the next step beyond high school, um, don't have the financial means, et cetera. So I want to continue to be a fierce advocate, but I think what I, what I, where I'm struggling is both in this moment with the pandemic and, and, and before is even for those students who do have the financial means, particularly historical, historically marginalized students because of race, I'm still struggling with, um, advocating as strongly as I used to about directly going into a four-year as opposed to just everybody going to a two-year, like everybody going to a community college. And, and I want to say just quickly, just out of, just so I'm really clear, I'm in Washington state, as you mentioned, which has essentially the strongest community college system in the country. I mean, we really are the envy of the country. And in fact, when you go to other parts of the, of the United States, people really don't even have a context to understand the notion of why you would even choose to go to a two-year college first. So we have a much different culture in this, in this, in this particular state about community college and other states don't. All of that to say, um, you know, I think our community colleges are more important than ever as a way to, as, as a pathway, an on-ramp for students who are historically marginalized in particular, but I think all students to access a four-year college like Seattle University, where I used to work and is beloved to me as an institution. Um, I think that the two-year college is, is really the way through, in many ways, this particular moment um, in higher education, given all that we now know about the inequity. I, and I, I want to make sure that people hear this right, because there's a, like, I did an entire episode about this, but there's this, like, smart, not actually smart, this stupid hot take that goes through the Atlantic Magazine uh. and Slate every 18 months that says, uh. like, the death of the liberal arts degree, we don't need, high, we don't need college degrees, uh, kids should go into the trades, and, like, if you want to go in the trades, you want to be an electrician, great, there are days I wish I was an electrician, like, it's a simpler life. Uh, it's rewarding and it pays well, right? And there's no grading for God's sakes. That said, uh, my life has been transformed by having a bachelor's degree. Uh -huh. My brother's life's been transformed by having a bachelor's degree. Uh -huh. uh, like I am here able to work at a prestigious international school and have the opportunities I have because I went to college and I have a degree uh -huh. and I got my degree after spending two years at Pierce, well, actually three years at Pierce College, long story there. But like I went the, the community college route. Uh -huh. All right, James, I want to go to you. There's a lot there that's been laid out. Your thoughts. Yeah. Um, first of all, like, I just want to get in and say, um, 
in the plainest way possible that even though I'm clearly an advocate for the four-year experience and for the same reasons you both have mentioned, I'm a first generation to college student. My dad is at work in agriculture his entire life. I mean, I still remember somebody bending over and to me as a little kid and saying, are you going to be a farmer like your dad? And him looking directly at this person and saying, he will never work this hard. The, uh-huh. the four-year experience absolutely changed my life. Uh-huh. But I, but I want to say that um, I am so fiercely protective of the value of, number one, community colleges for all the things that Kim mentioned, right? As a place to, um, frankly, uh, if you don't have the financial resources or if your grades didn't work out the way you wanted them to, or you need an environment where you're going to get the kind of support that a community college is uniquely positioned to provide. Um, I I think community colleges and particularly here in the state of Washington are such a vital part of the system. And, um, and I, I feel the same conflicts um, that, that Kim is talking about. You know, when, when I talk with students and I talk with families uh, there, there are families who I will say, look, um, there is a pathway for you to do this right now. But there is also a pathway for you to get here. And one of the reasons I love working at a place like Seattle U is as a private Jesuit Catholic institution with a huge tuition bill um, with kind of a liberal arts uh, DNA. It's still a place that um, believes in the transformation and believes in enrolling students from two-year colleges and provides funding to some degree for, for some students to make it possible. Um, which makes us a little bit unusual in our type of institution. So, you know, I think like, especially right now, Nate and Kim, when I, when I talk with families, um, I find myself trying to advocate for the fact that your degree is a destination that's not going to be defined by the fall, right? If, if you are making kind of a nihilistic decision because of, COVID-19, meaning you're saying, oh, this is all hopeless. Like my big thing is just like start. Like if, if, if a four-year college isn't going to be possible for you, start at a two-year college. That is an amazing place to begin. And, and we are so blessed, like you said, in Washington state to have some of the best two-year colleges in the country. I can't agree with that more. Um, I, I do think, um, and, and this is something that I, I just want to second that Nate said, I, I do think the um, relevance of the bachelor's degree, in particular the relevance uh, at, at a place like Seattle U where Jesuit education is all about, um, you know, uh, l- both learning, but also learning to practice. Um, you know, we, we need educated people in this moment more than any other time. Um, we are going to need coming out of this pandemic, um, people who have uh, survived this, who have an equity and justice lens, who understand the systems of power and understand the systems of inequality so that they can work to break them down. And, and I, I think we have a shared responsibility to get students through the process of that understanding and the process of that discernment. Uh-huh. And, and I, I so agree that particularly now, community colleges are going to have to play a role if we're going to have an educated population on the flip side of this. I appreciate the motto of Pierce College they're using their marketing right now. They're basically putting Pierce alumni on billboards, uh, self-included, and it says, I got my start at Pierce. Uh So like, 
I have a graduate degree from Evergreen and teaching an undergraduate from, from a bachelor, an undergrad degree in from Evergreen as well. But like I started at Pierce College mm-hmm. and I would say if you're a high school kid who's listening to this, if the numbers don't add up for you, there is no shame. And actually there's pride in going to community college. Like you should not be afraid of that choice yes. and do not be afraid of anything that anybody says to you. Like in the end, if you make it to a four-year school, you get the same damn degrees as everybody else. Absolutely. So I want to make a bit of a pivot here because we're talking about the need for equity and the need for uh, for solutions that center students. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an organization who I have been tangentially associated with for years now who seems to be just covering. (laughs) For the record, Kim. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, let's talk about the college board. Uh, Let's. For the uninitiated, the College Board is the uh, <laughs> nonprofit corporation that runs the AP exams, which are college in the classroom, college level exams given to high school kids, and they also run the SAT. Uh, I've given interviews where I have called for the College Board to be nationalized uh, because this function is too important to be done by a private corporation. But like, I have two guests who are ready to swing, so I'm going to lean back for a second. Uh, Kim, why don't you start? <laughs> Get him. Get him. James and Nate. Good morning. Good oh, evening, Nate. Um, yeah, uh, the college board. Um, so my my day job, I suppose, is I do, uh, I'm a racial equity practitioner um, and I work with public high schools across the country, Texas, Michigan, South Carolina, and here in Washington State to uh, desegregate AP and, and IB courses. Um, and so my org- the organization, Equal Opportunity Schools nonprofit located in, here in Seattle is not affiliated at all with the college board. And in fact, the vast majority of organizations out there doing any kind of equity work in public ed, which could include um, equitable enrollment and AP are not affiliated with the college board. Um, formally. The ways in which we are is that we are in, you know, I think pretty clear ways advocating for AP courses, one, like advocating for those courses to actually exist in schools with large numbers of historically marginalized students and in poor schools, and advocating that because we we as an educational community have determined, decided, um, kind of coronated these courses as being the best, the markers of rigor. So when James and his team receives a transcript from Lincoln High School and students have taken AP Gov, AP World, and APUSH, AP US History, they understand what that means, but they don't necessarily understand what it means if a kid from Texas who has a bunch of dual enrollment courses from their particular district or city in Texas, it's like, what does that mean? We have hundreds of dual enrollment programs, but we have one AP and one IB. So, you know, the college board remains, has, you know, stays as problematic as any organization out there um, in regards to, I think they're kind of squishy um, uh, status as a nonprofit organization, as a revenue, a very high revenue generating nonprofit organization that really holds, I mean, quite literally holds, owns, kind of, you know, the two most prominent gateways to higher education in the country, the SAT 
and AP. And what has been particularly, I think, enraging during the pandemic is their complete, uh, ref- from, from my perspective, and I think, I sh- I think others share this perspective, really kind of their refusal or a digging in, <laughs> um, a refusal to really acknowledge how inequity in the system of, of, of public education alone, just that, that system alone, um, creates such barriers for historically marginalized students to access these courses and then access the exam. So I don't know how much you want me to say about this, Nate. I mean, I could go on and on. I think what's just been really dis- you know, enraging, yes, surprising, no, Hmm. is this organization's just complete lack of, you know, real empathy for students and families in general. Um, But in particular, when you have a lack of empathy for students and families in general, it means that that lack of empathy really hits historically marginalized students. And I want to include in, in that disabled students and students who are neurodiverse that accessing the test itself is such a challenge and to see an organization that owns this, 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 again, this gateway AP and SA and the SAT really just kind of dig in to, and kind of dig, you know, again, dig in their heels has just been really, um, I think pretty devastating. So for context for me, uh, we're recording this on May the 8th. It's about mm, 8 p.m. Uh, here in Abu Dhabi. My students who take AP government here at Lincoln High School, sorry, not anymore. My students who take uh, AP government uh, here in Abu Dhabi are taking their AP exam on the 11th, so on Monday. Right. Uh, the college board is proctoring the exams online and is doing one exam window for the entire world. What so time, dur- Nate? What time? So During the month of Ramadan, my kids are taking their exam at midnight. Unbelievable. So my kids are going ridiculous. to log, log on at ridiculous. midnight and take their AP exam uh, on a computer. Kids in Singapore are taking their exams at four o'clock in the morning. And, and let's be really clear here. I want to be super clear. This is intentional. This, is, this does not have to be this way. So I think it's, it's really clear, particularly now, my God, now more than ever, if we cannot be as clear as possible about the intentionality of organizations, schools, decision makers, those in power to, to make a decision to have students taking a 45-minute, an online exam that is now 45 minutes, despite how, I mean, just everything about it is just so as you know, as the kids say, cringe, it's so cringe. (laughs) And again, it's does not have to be this way. It does not, you don't have to have students in Abu Dhabi taking an AP exam at midnight during Ramadan. You don't have to have students in Singapore taking an exam at three or four in the morning. You, You don't, but you, but I think there's, there's again, an intentionality, a design to inequity that we see playing out over and over and over again by organizations like the College Board. 
Well, and their reason is we're doing it all at the same time for test security reasons. And my response is then have multiple versions of the test. This ain't hard. Like this ain't hard. Have multiple versions, do a world exam, do a US exam. But the idea that like we're going to ask kids in Singapore at the American International School of Singapore or kids in Seoul during a pandemic to get mm. up at four o'clock in the morning and take an exam in their second language for many of them, like mm. I, 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 I can't, I, I can't. The notion of uh, James, test security is white supremacy. Said, mm-hmm. said, zero disagreement. Mm-hmm. James, your thoughts? So, uh, and if this gets too nerdy, just edit me out. But, but, but let me, <laughs> let, let me, let me, let me, let me go a different, slightly different direction, but with equal, um, with an equally vehement take. Um, why does there have to be a test at all? Hmm. Because let me tell you what IB is doing right now. So IB provides their students a predicted score. And that predicted score is meant for admissions offices, predominantly in the United States, to be able to make decisions because a lot of students don't get traditional grades in an IB Mm -hmm. setting. Uh, They get a one through seven result. So, you know, it it hit me at at first, like, what are they doing when IB basically wrote to everyone and said, what we're going to do is we're going to take the predicted score plus um, plus their faculty's kind of final assessment of how the student performed in important, like higher level courses, like theory of knowledge. And we're going to provide as the exam score, kind of a composite of those two things. And at first it was like higher ed, higher ed arm cross. How can this be? Right. But it's, it's like, let's question like why we're so tied to the idea that the exam a 40, let's just say a 45 minute exam is going to summarize your entire learning in an AP course or an IB course, particularly when that exam, by the way, is a complete reformatting of the existing three hour exam that we're talking about with AP. Um, And even no matter what the college board tries to tell us around, oh, this, this is going to be totally valid. And these scores are going to be totally correlated. No, they're not. I mean, how can you say that? It, It took almost a decade to do the last revision of the SAT yeah. and all the research that went into that. And colleges, I can't speak for every college, but colleges are going to give the students the benefit of the doubt on this, on the IB reformat, the AP reformat, in terms of providing placement and credit, right? We're just going to give students the benefit of the doubt because they don't have a choice in the matter. So it, it makes you question, why are we so tied to the orthodoxy of the exam at all? Why does this have to exist? Every AP course is taught on a standardized, rigorous curriculum, right? What Mr. Bowling does is related to what another teacher around the world is doing in the same exact class. So Uh why can't we be taking the results from those courses and applying them to college credit in the way that IB is doing? Oh, we know why, why, James. We know why. (laughs) Well, we know why. (laughs) We know why. Question alert. <laughs> I want to just bring one more voice into this. Uh, I have a colleague named Corinna Tarvin who works at Lincoln High School, and uh, she teaches AP World History, which means she has sophomores. And I reached out to her and asked her to kind of tell me the story of how things are working for her at Lincoln. So I want to play some audio and then have you all respond. So here's what happened. Um, after schools were shut down, the college board sent out a survey via email to all of the students who were just recently out of school. And that would have meant that they needed to check their school email, which who is even doing? 
and um, then take a survey from the college board. And why would anybody do that besides the kids who are like really jonesing to take that exam and who are like type A, like really, really excited about it. Um, and so they got about 18,000 responses out of, I don't know, a million, two million kids. And they're saying it's representative when it's not actually representative, it's just representative of the kids who took the survey on email. So whatever, they said, the kids want to take the exam, so we're going to do it. And um, so we're like, all right, so we're going to only do the first three quarters of the class. And so all of the fun stuff that I had planned for recent history is out the window. That's okay. We're going to go back. And so like, instead of letting us explore and just do things and cancel the exam and have like a more engaging, um, free-flowing experience. We had to go back to stuff we taught in September and start teaching it again via like remotely before we knew anything about what we were doing. Okay, so then <laughs> shout out Hope Bixby. Bixby and I were trying to figure out what kind of writing prompt the students were going to have to do. And we're like, well, if we're going to do only 45 minutes of an exam, then it has to be representative of the things that we've taught this whole year. So it's probably going to be like three short answer questions, maybe from different time periods, so that they can at least show what they know about the different time periods. Um, it might be just a five paragraph essay because then they have to remember a bunch of facts. It's definitely not going to be a DBQ document based question because that doesn't show that they know anything except how to write an essay, which is an important thing to do. But like, I actually have a student who joined my class after the second semester started, but she came into the class with really strong writing skills. She had been in a civics class. She doesn't know anything about old world history. And I really think she's going to pass this test because she knows how to write an essay. So what that tells me is that they chose the kind of writing prompt that students with parents who will agitate for better grades and who want their kids to take the exam are going to do better on. And it's not the kids who had, to, we've been like scaffolding and struggling and reassessing and working on all this stuff all year long that are going to do well. They're, they're going to struggle on a DBQ. We honestly hadn't even written a full DBQ in class yet because we were scaffolding up to that point. And so of course, this is the one thing they don't have to remember anything from history. They just need to remember like three things and um then they just know how to need to know how to write an essay so that ain't right also how are you gonna say a 45 minute exam is going to help us like give three to five college credits um that's ridiculous they just want to make that money and they also say that the um the colleges have all agreed that they're going to value these um, test scores, but there actually isn't a list of universities that have agreed to this. So for what? Why are we even doing this? Um, they also say that students aren't competing against each other and, and that the score distributions are going to be like they've always been. But they've always been competing against each other because it's graded on a curve. So I can hear the exasperation in Corinna's voice, and I can also see the, like, the full physical responses that you two are having and listening to that. Uh, James, I want to start with you. Uh, when, when you hear a teacher saying that story about what her students have to go through and what she's being put up to, uh, what do you think? So the first thing I want to say, uh, like I've been really trying to prevent myself from going into negativity spirals. So I just want to start off by saying like, <laughs> shouts to teachers, yo. Like, the, can you hear the passion in her voice? Like, can you hear how frustrated she is trying so hard to help her kids succeed uh, on this, on this ridiculous mission. And I'm just, I just, I just want to take a second to like recognize every teacher out there who is just doing the work. Um, Cause she is clearly doing the work. The, the list of colleges thing. 
nobody, nobody asked. We were told, okay, we were told, we want you to, we want you to support students. Nobody asked. Nobody asked for feedback. There, there I'm sure is an advisory board somewhere that, that gave some feedback, but nobody asked our faculty who go through a review process on the curriculum, on the syllabus, on the uh, outcomes, on the learning outcomes, the uh, assessment itself to award that credit course by course. Nobody asked our faculty that question. Nobody asked, would an online course given at the same time around the world be okay? Would 45 minutes be okay? Would open response? Nobody asked that question. Nobody has been asked that question. Nobody. Um, I, I just, it, it, I just, I feel both empathy for her struggle and I feel the same frustration because we're all backed into a corner now trying to help students follow through on what it is that they want to follow through on. And we're have, having to do it in this way that just doesn't make sense. It, it's just nonsense. Jim? So you saw my body language. Both James and I were like, make it stop. <laughs> make it yeah. stop. Um, Corinna, my plutonic spouse, um, best friend, love her. And I have had many, 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 many conversations about this. Um, Pre-COVID, but per, but specifically now, um, and I think what stands out for me, and 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 because I know Corinna so well, and we've had these conversations, is is what stands out for me are everything James said, but also just like the sheer absurdity of it all, and I think that's part of why. I mean, that, that I think that's part of the the kind of again the the, the intention the deliberate design of really kind of neoliberal oriented um, systems like the college board is just kind of this, this, um, this absurdity, these kinds of, you know, this like, well, like these things that they make you go through in order to, um, according to them, um, you know, have a quote college like experience. Um, and it's just, it's very frustrating because it's, of course, has nothing to do with students. A, it has nothing to do with teachers. Um, it has the, the least amount to do with either of those two quote unquote stakeholders. Um, and then, of course, the big lie is, um, I think, several things. One, that a 45 minute exam um, that is kind of cobbled together is actually meaningful in any real way. Um, and though I, though I am really conflicted about standardized tests, I do feel still pretty strongly that every high school student should have an experience with a high stakes test. Um, I absolutely agree that the course that, um, and I don't really care if it's AP or I don't care what it is. Um, you know, of course our, we're concerned with all of us with transformative experiences in classrooms for students. So one, just kind of the, the, the absurdity of it all both leads me to think about like, what does this 45 minute test actually do other than make money for the college board? But also I think once again, exposes the great lie that the college board somehow continues to rely upon, which is that colleges themselves love AP colleges themselves um, really want students to be coming in with all of this credit 
um, as a result of AP exams, and it, nothing can be further from the truth. And in fact, when I share that with students and families, like, you know, the most important thing is your engagement in the course. And yes, you should sit for the exam, at least one of them, especially if you want to, it's a good experience. But know that even if you get a four or a five and you transfer that credit into um, your chosen school, one, depends on, you know, the content, it depends on the school, whether or not they will accept that credit. But colleges would really rather not. They would really rather not. Um, and frankly, for their own financial reasons, but also I think the least, the less cynical reason is that we want students on colleges to take those courses in residence. We want students mm -hmm. to have first year college experiences in English, in writing, in history, particularly in math and, and the hard sciences. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's, it's almost the college board is one of those things that it's like and and their their behavior is almost like one of those things not even worth discussing like not even they're not even i don't even want to give them the dignity of discussing it except that they have such a stranglehold such a stranglehold on the ways that we deliver education in the United States through AP courses and on this the, the the actual just getting into college itself with the SAT and now that we see more colleges and universities going toward test optional or just don't even bother um i really think that we may be seeing i don't know i'm hoping might may that you know seattle university aside i think a lot of colleges and universities have a very um questionable symbiotic relationship with the college board that we might want to talk on it, talk about on another show. Um, <laughs> but what I'm saying is now that we're seeing a lot of colleges respond with, you know what, these tests never really mattered and gave us that much information anyway. We're really seeing kind of an organization back into a corner and reacting, I think, in that way. So I have been, uh, that's, uh, first of all, <laughs> that, that was brilliant. You should take what Kim just said, cut it out. And everybody, everybody on earth should have to listen to that. Um, thank you, Kim, so much. That was like, I'm going to be re listening to that in my head for a long time. Uh, use it, wanna, James, use it. Yeah. I love it. Tell, go do it. Thank you. I love it. Um, I, the next yeah, let me say a couple of things about that, um, that last point you made in terms of the relationship with the college board. Um, the first thing I want to say, something that really gives me hope is that um, I've been a test optional advocate for over a decade. Um, I've helped a college transition to test optional admission. I'm getting ready to help another one start uh, in 2021. Um, and so I am having the richest conversations with my colleagues who are being forced into test optional programs because there are not going to be enough seats available for students to take the SAT even if they want to this fall. Our, our seniors, anybody who is requiring the SAT right now or the ACT right now for 2021 is deluding themselves. Uh. There are going to be students not just not able to retake, but students, many of whom are the ones we're trying to get to higher ed because it will transform them and the next generation. <laughs> uh, the uh, those students who take the SAT for the first time in the late summer or the fall are simply not going to be able to. 
Um, so I am, first of all, having really amazing and rich conversations with colleagues about, you know, how do you read an application without test scores? Uh, and, and being able to say, you know, it's actually the most freeing thing you've ever done. You, you get to really focus on who the kid is. You get to really focus on the context. You get to focus on the writing. You get to focus on the curriculum and the curricular pathway that the student has taken. You get to do the work of an admissions office instead of just looking at one stupid number and saying like, oh, okay, now I understand this person's capacity. But I will tell you the next intellectual battleground coming up rapidly is um, an online SAT or ACT which um, is going to be a thing and colleges are going to have to decide and, and, and shouts to my colleagues at Claremont McKenna who bo both went test optional for 2021 and said, if, if, they, if the college board puts up a online SAT, forget about it. Don't even bother sending it to us. We're not going to look at it. That, that is the next intellectual battleground slash point of conversation in this in this whole issue um, is is the perpetuation of the need to have that testing revenue right which then drives like how do we deliver this test in 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 a new way in an online way I'm not opposed to that I, I would love to see the the SAT move online I would love to see the SAT move into a flexible format but for God's sake it takes a decade mm. to build a new test it takes a decade to validate a new test we can't just take a score that looks the same as the old score and say, oh yeah, this thing that didn't really help us make predictions in the first place. Now here's a non-validated <laughs> version of it. So we'll just throw this in place because it looks exactly like the old one. It's just nonsense. It doesn't, it just doesn't compute. And so I, I agree with you, Kim. I'm really hopeful. I am, I am as hopeful as I've ever been in mm. my work that we are reaching a, a, a spiritual awakening in college admissions around our dependence upon um, particularly high stakes exams, but, but, but exams that don't really serve us, right. That don't really help the students and don't really help us make good decisions. I could spend an entire week dunking on the college board about these issues. Uh, one point I'll bring up in bring up is, is at the end of that clip, uh, a part we didn't play. Corinna brings up technology equity issues. So I work at a school where every kid has a laptop, every kid has own Wi-Fi. And so a online test is less than ideal, but like my kids can make it work even at midnight. Uh -huh. There was an article in the News Tribune in the last two days that talks about how 5,000 kids in Tacoma schools do not have home computers. And so like the college board literally recommended that students like park in grocery store parking lots to get on their Wi-Fi to take their exams on their phones. Like when we're talking about this exam, when, this ex the, when the centrality of this exam is so important that we're encouraging low-income kids to park their cars in Safeway parking lots to jump on their Wi-Fi to take their exams, then like we've lost the plot and it's not about education anymore. It's nonsense. They don't want to give refunds. Like it's, it's, it's hogwash. It's, 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 it, it's, just, it's awful. It's trash. Yeah. It's trash. It's trash. It's just trash. And I, I think that's such a great point, Nate. Um, and I also just want to um, just quickly to what you said about, you know, kids where you are who have, you know, one-to-one -one, uh, devices. Um, I imagine you have really excellent high-speed internet throughout the country. Like you're living in a very different in place infrastructurally than the United States of America. Let's be really clear. And that when an organization fixes its mouth to say something like, well, why don't you just go to like the McDonald's parking lot and take your test? You, 
that is that is the giveaway, everybody. That's the giveaway that this shit never mattered anyway. That's the actual <laughs> giveaway. Yeah. Because what you're saying as an organization is, we know that this is complete horseshit. But we're going to do a bunch of stuff that we've been doing for the last, you know, for the, for many decades. Um, again, another show about just the actual, like, historical and racial underpinnings of the SAT and high stakes testing anyway, that seems to never be the center of the conversation. We're going to put that, I'm going to put that over here for a second. What I'm saying is, is that for an organization like with as much power as the college board, to say something like that to students is, is the actual tell. They're actually, they, they've been telling on themselves for so many years, but now they're really telling on themselves because there's no reason why you could actually justify mentally, <laughs> um, really, I'm just, like, just in your mind that you can somehow justify the importance of a test when you're telling students just go somehow get yourself to a parking lot sit outside of that parking or sit in that parking lot and take a test. It just, it doesn't pass the smell test. I mean, to, I mean, it just doesn't compute to what James is saying. And so I, 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 I'm really thrilled to hear James perspective um, about just his sense of hopefulness around institutions, um, you know, responding to this nonsense finally. Um, and I think the test optional movement is such, um, is such a movement for racial justice. Um, and, and I, I hope that the, I hope that the pandemic itself, that what we now understand as a result of the pandemic and what we now understand are the needs of students and families, particularly those who are historically marginalized, that institutions can start to, again, center students and families in a way that they haven't before. Um, and I think a really, I think it's really hopeful that if, that the first step might be, you know, saying enough, enough of kind of this game, but also enough of just assessing students' readiness for college and readiness for the experience by a test that they took their junior year or their senior year of high school that maybe gives us some data about maybe how they might, I don't know, could possibly perform like their first semester or first quarter of their first year of college. And then the data is completely bullshit after that. All right. So I need to land this plane. Uh, we'd like to end the show with a thing called the wind down. And so very quickly, uh, the question for you all is, who is somebody the audience should be listening to? It could be another podcast. It could be a hip hop artist that you're listening to. It could be uh, an audio book. Like I'm really right now into uh, Ronan Farrow's uh, Catch and Kill. Like it's a phenomenal listen. Uh, Peabody nominee. Peabody nominee. Uh, James, we'll start with you. James, who should we be listening to? Okay. You should do two things. Number one, if you haven't read Nicole Hannah-Jones, go <laughs> read Nicole Hannah-Jones. Preach. Pulitzer Prize winning. Oh, the people's champ. People's, people's champ. champ. Second, um, it came out a few years ago. It's a it's a vault release, but go listen to Prince's piano and a microphone. Okay, James. Okay, it is, it is okay. getting me through right now. All right, done, done. Uh, without question, uh, Fiona Apple's "Fetch the Bolt Cutters." Um, 
perfect album. She's a genius. Um, Pitchfork gave it a 10 out of 10, their first perfect score in decades. It's easily a 20 out of 10. Um, just like it really is just everything. So that's one. Two, um, Nate, you'll, you, you already know what I'm going to say. Gaslit Nation. Um, yep. if, if folks have not yet, um, whoo, if folks have not yet become familiar with Sarah Kenzior, who is an author, um, and her, her latest book, um, Hiding in Plain Sight is also terrific, but her podcast mm-hmm. with Andrea Chalupa called Gaslit Nation about the rise of autocracy in the United States and around the world, um, is, um, not a lighthearted romp. It will not make you feel good, but it will make you feel heard and it will make you feel seen and it will make you feel like you are not losing your mind. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, if folks want to follow you all on the socials, where should they look? I am on Twitter at decolonize equity, all one word. Follow me. Um, yeah, I am at, on Twitter, but not so active these days because a little busy with other stuff. But um, at M-I-L-L-J-A-M-E, at Mill Jane. Um, you can also uh, listen to my podcast, uh, which is called Admit It, which is produced with an organization that I work with called Acro and produced by none other than Doug Mackey. Yeah. Tug is all up in this stuff. You know, Doug's mad at me for going long on this, but I'm just going to say really fast. Uh, I've been approached by a couple of folks <laughs> about like, hey, Nate, I want to get a podcast started. How do I do it? And I always reply, I don't effing know. I have Doug, right? And so like, if you <laughs> want to start a podcast um, and you want like like good audio produced and you want to be able to get your voice out, uh, hit up Doug Mackey, Moonyard Studios, search him on Facebook. He's made every episode of the show possible. Like without Doug, there is no Nerd Farmer. There is no James Podcast. There's no Channel 253. Doug, we love you. The man. Thank you, Doug. Thank the you. Man. That's very kind. Wakanda forever, y'all. Wakanda. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Sometimes I'm like, what is the grossest thing that could be pumpkin spice? And then I it's Google it. Pumpkin and spice I earth right it. here. Pumpkin spice pumpkin, Yeah, that is pumpkin. We are a pumpkin spice trash fire. Yeah, that's we what we are. That's what we are. Pumpkin spice trash Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.